Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path Podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness and meditation and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right. Hello. Good, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Today, I'm so honored to have as my guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist, a resilience expert, senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 29 languages and include Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring, hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture with over 900,000 copies in English alone. Dr. Hansen has been a trustee of Saybrook University, served on the board of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and was the president of the board of Family Works, a community agency. He began meditating in 1974, trained in several traditions, and leads a weekly meditation gathering. He and his wife live in Northern California and have two adult children. He enjoys being in wilderness and taking a break from emails, which I think we all need these days. So stay tuned as we're going to learn a lot more about Rick here on today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is psychologist and resilience expert, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick, welcome to the show. John, it's a pleasure to be here. And as we were chatting before we started, uh, we have a mutual friend, Lee Lesser, for whom I have just bone deep respect. And when she spoke of you in such glowing terms and, and the work you do, I was immediately in. Uh, I really have a strong heart connection with uh, the kind of work you do. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm not sure she's speaking about the same person you're talking with today, but <laughs> kind of looked I, like I you. I don't know, unless it's some amazing makeup. <laughs> well, uh, Lee's, Lee's amazing, and and what she and Chris have put together with Veterans Path is uh, is a fantastic uh, organization, and I'm honored to be a part of it now. So, thank you for thank you for that. And uh, and as I mentioned, uh, I uh, Lee has introduced me to several other. Um, all-stars, for lack of a better term, right now in, in this space uh, with Richard Miller and, and James Barris and now you. And in, in the coming weeks, I've got Linda Graham and Ronna McGee 
and and I'm just in awe of of what you all do, and and can't believe that I'm, I'm kind of getting the chance to to interview all interview you all and and then share your message. Um, so thank you very much again for being here today. Um, it's, it, it's a pleasure, and it it might sound like a cliche, but it's really really sincere. I and I probably speak for them too. Am in awe of you and what <laughs> you do and what the people you helped have done and yeah, do. Well, so it's mutual. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, with your background in resilience, I kind of want to jump right into what it is we're facing right now uh, mm -hmm. as, as a country, as, as a society, as a, as a globe. Mm -hmm. um, how are you personally dealing with COVID-19 and, and everything that has come with it? Probably like a lot of people, um, I'm trying to take action in three places. So take action out in the world. So we're careful. My wife and I are in our 60s, so we're in good shape physically, but we're cautious, right? And until we know more, tread carefully. I, it feels a little bit to me like we're all out on a knife blade or red in a whiteout. And the fall on either side could be five feet or 500 feet or 5,000 feet. We don't know. So meanwhile, tread carefully. So out in the world, in the body, uh, I'm trying to get a little more exercise, trying to build up you know, my reserves. So if when this thing happens, I'm smarter. Um, we're paying attention to new research about people do better if they already have pretty high levels of vitamin D and you know, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And especially intervening in the mind. This is my own specialty. It's what I do for a living, psychology. When I mean by intervening in the mind is really working on calm strength, the feeling of connection with other people, thankfulness what is, for what is still also good and true, and other factors, muscles, if you will, that make us resilient. So that's what I'm doing. And um, I'd say at a personal level, I feel both fascinated and grateful and appalled. <laughs> and those seemingly contradictory experiences side by side, I think are part of what characterizes this time. Oh, absolutely. And, and you mentioned um, in the body, in the mind, and in the world. And in your book, Resilient, you state that there's a fundamental idea in psychology and medicine that the path your life takes depends on three causes. And then you mentioned that these three causes being can be located in three places. Um, can you tell us about those causes? And oh, yeah. you already covered the, the three places. This is incredibly useful, and I'm noting already that you were a careful reader of my book, so I already <laughs> like you more than ever now. But anyway, <laughs> um, so you're exactly right. There's this fundamental, super practical model. I mean, that's what I am. I'm a practical methods guy. I consume a ton of research, but I'm really interested in applying it. So there's this basic idea that whatever happens to a person in a day, a year, or a life boils down to the combination of the challenges they face, the vulnerabilities of various kinds those challenges wear on or penetrate through, the chinks in their armor, and then the resources they draw on to manage the challenges, um, protect their vulnerabilities, and shore up their well-being along the way. So we have challenges, vulnerabilities, resources. It's a fundamental model, and it immediately takes a person, a leader uh, of a group, or an individual for themselves to assess what are the challenges? What are the vulnerabilities? What are the resources? And the key issue I encounter routinely is that people are under-resourced. Do what we can with the challenges. Do what we can with the vulnerabilities, but the opportunities there are often somewhat limited. We're, you know, there's, we're constrained in what we can influence. But resources are full of possibility. And it's forward-looking, it's optimistic, it's future-focused. 
And so we can then spend a lot of time building resources. And so, as you said, challenges, vulnerabilities, resources are found in three places, out in the world, in the body, in the mind. That gives us a three by three matrix, nine opportunities, nine ways to make things better. They're all really important. The one I focus on is resource building inside the mind and the actual how of doing that based on the science of positive neuroplasticity. Yeah, so that, that was a, another one of my questions is, is you talk about neuroplasticity, um, can you define that for our, mm -hmm. our readers and then how that is developed or cultivated yep. through mindfulness? Yeah, so if you, you just kind of work backwards, you work backwards from where does it really suck? You know, what are the challenges, right? Or how is it hitting someone hard? And then you go to, all right, what in effect muscle would be good to grow? to deal with that particular thing. So for example, someone who feels uh, immobilized, like they don't have power, they don't have, they're kind of helpless, they're not able to make things happen. Well, a resource, a psychological resource that would be really useful for that challenge would be to grow the sense that at least in certain parts of my life, I can still make things happen. I can still make choices with how I think, with how I speak, with what I do in certain key areas. And I can build up that sense of feeling more like a hammer and less like a nail, for example. Or someone might say, I don't feel I have purpose anymore. I don't have mission, like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, all right, that's a challenge, right? So again, what would be a resource? It would be to grow a sense of meaning, purpose, values, inspiration, insight. All of which have to be authentic. There's nothing in this that's about BS or faking it or positive thinking. It's like real, okay. How do you build those resources? That's the key question. What's the fundamental process? And it literally is a lot like building muscles so that you're more able to do certain things, run longer, lift heavier, keep on going, all right. So there's a science of physical muscle building. People understand that now. They understand some of the mechanics, how do new muscle fibers form, what kind of training is gonna be most efficient and most effective. Slowly, Scientists and psychologists have come to understand uh, how to make mental training effective, including the cultivation of things like uh, calm, sense of mission, of sense of efficacy or agency, things that I've talked about so far. And uh, the fundamental how of that is in extremely simple. It has two simple steps, but people routinely forget the second one. The first step is we must experience whatever we want to grow inside so that we have a pattern of neural activation occurring in the underlying circuitry. It's gotta kinda of light up in effect. Um, but then second step, critically important, we have to help that experience of let's say agency or sense of purpose in life. The two examples that I've given here, we have to help that experience leave a lasting physical change in the brain. It would be like lifting a weight. So in the moment you're working the muscle, but when you're done, there's no increased building of fibers in that particular muscle. So you have lasting gain with you for the next time you lift that weight, right? right. Uh, so if we leave out the second step in the brain, it's like lifting the weight. And in the moment you're working it, but you're getting no lasting change. You're not getting stronger. Right. So, uh, and then we can talk about the how of that. I bet we'll get into that. But the how of it's really simple. A lot of it just boils down to stay with the experience for five, 10, 30 seconds in a row. The, there's a, the longer you keep the neurons firing, the more they're gonna tend to be wiring together along the way. 
And then you could do add-ons, feel it in your body, help it be emotionally rich. Um, I look through your website. I, I see a lot of the things that you do in your trainings. They naturally are activating these factors of neuroplastic change. It's a fancy term. It just means muscle building in effect in the brain. You're changing. That's the plasticity of it. You're changing it and you're changing it neurologically. So these are, these are natural things people do, you know, being outdoors, being together with other people, staying with the feeling of it, being active while you do it, bringing enthusiasm to something, bringing heart to what we're trying to grow. All these are neurologically grounded factors that make us super learners, help us really grow from what we're doing. And we can then uh, grab hold of those methods. We can really use those methods ourselves and we can teach them to others to radically accelerate the growth process and the healing process and steepen the growth curve through life. Nice, nice. Uh, you talked about a couple of things there that I want to hit on. The, the sense of purpose and sense of mission, that's a huge one for those of us who are leaving the military where we've kind of had um, our purpose almost told to us yeah. through, our, through our whole career, whether it's five years or whether it's 24, 30, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then when we get out, there's mm -hmm. almost a sense of loss of that purpose, loss of mission, and even yeah. loss of identity. But it sounds like you could even use mindfulness to help to reestablish that uh, or identify a new purpose, identify a new mission um, through that neuroplasticity, identifying that, figuring that out. And then you talk about uh, the neuroplasticity and, and in the book, you talk about being mindful of being mindful and then being mindful of not being mindful. And that, that kind of, uh, you know, those two uh, opposing thoughts or opposite views, but how important they are to really help to develop that neuroplasticity. Can you talk a little bit more about those two, those two thoughts or trains of thought? Yeah, so mindfulness is a word that's gotten pretty slippery and elastic. So I think it's that's okay. But just so, what do we mean by it? You know, yes. um, I what I mean by it is sort of its original meaning as sustained present moment awareness. It's morally neutral. It is just what it is. A burglar is very mindful. A mother watching her child in a playground, getting really close to a bus, is also really mindful. And right? so mindfulness is simply that. Mindfulness is wonderful, and it enables us to, to grow strengths inside of various kinds because it helps us identify the experiences that are useful and notice them when they're happening. Also, we can use mindfulness to realize whether we're being effective in creating an experience. So, for example, let's take the sense of mission, the sense of purpose, um, and, and value. Right, the sense that uh, my life is worth living, I'm contributing in some important way, I've got a purpose, I've got an identity, I'm someone who is helping or contributing in this way, right? So, uh, like I said, the necessary first step is you gotta get the song playing inside your mind. You have to start with the experience. You can't just drop a cable, unlike in the Matrix the with Matrix. Neo. I kind of wish it, you know, I'd be like, learn how to fly a helicopter like that, you know. I know Kung Fu. <laughs> yeah, I know Kung Fu. What? <laughs> That'd be really great, you know. Anyway, but um, I'm a world-class poker player suddenly. You're like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, but we can't do it, and you can imagine some horrible things that we could, so it's right on from there. But you got to start with the experience. Okay, so... Two ways to have that experience of, let's say, uh, a feeling of contributing and value, and this is how you know, I can be in this world. One is you already are experiencing it. For some reason, you help a kid, 
And you just kind of, the kid looks at you like, thank you. And you go like, that was pretty okay. Or you realize that in your job, you know, that actually people value you. They, you know, the stakes are not anything as high as they used to be. But even in that setting, there's respect. You feel respected. You're experiencing it already. Mindfulness helps you flag that experience as a keeper. Like, okay, I'm, ha- I'm experiencing something useful. Um, and then you go into the second step of internalizing it, of staying with it, keeping the neurons firing together, literally kind of hardwiring it into your own body. Or you can deliberately create an experience. That's a little subtler, I'm sure, with an experience. It's easy to create an experience of gratitude, pretty much. You think it's something you're thankful for. To create an experience of mission, meaning, and purpose is a little subtler. But, you know, maybe you're talking with some friends and you're listening to how they do it. And you're thinking, yeah, I could, they're doing it. I could honor that. I could, I could feel my way into that. You know, I could take that on as my own attitude, right? I could follow their example. Either way noticing or creating, you're having an experience. And mindfulness then helps us to identify that. And mindfulness also helps us stay with the experience for a breath or two or three in a row, which is kind of necessary to begin it really hardwiring in. Um, And then it's helpful as you train in mindfulness uh, to notice when you're not being mindful and to return again and again and again. And then you'd start developing sustained presence of mind. You're just present more and more stably. Right. It's become natural to you. It's become a new habit. Right. Uh, and I've definitely seen that um, in my own life. Um, yeah. You know, I have a three-year-old daughter and, and when she was six months old and when I wasn't practicing, um, you know, when I was feeding her a bottle mm-hmm. or spending time with her, my mind was elsewhere. And, uh, and then when I did practice, I was focused in that very moment yeah. and enjoying that moment of feeding her the bottle or, you know, holding her and just singing her a song. Yeah. Um, and, and as I did that more and more, I found that I was noticing good things in my life all over the place, not just mm-hmm. in that, in that moment, what do you feel has led to our becoming less and less mindful as, as a society? Many, what do you feel that we have become less mindful? It's hard to measure it, but I think it's probably true. I think of my dad born on a ranch in North Dakota, November, 1918 passed away just a few years ago after a long life. Ranch is still in the family. And I've, I think a lot about his life growing up. <clears throat> they were in the present a lot because it was the nature of the work. They weren't rushing about. They weren't switching gears every two seconds. They were not bombarded with media. The phone wasn't ringing. The emails were not coming. You know, the texts were not landing. It was just a really different life. And that's much closer to our true nature. You know, it's basically hunter-gatherer animals who only 10,000 years ago began to develop agriculture that enabled large populations of people. And even still, people lived pretty close to their own biological nature until just the last 50 or so years, really accelerated in the last 20. So these changes have made people a lot less dropped in to the present and have uh, a lot trained the brain to be preoccupied with the past or continually imagining different troublesome futures, right? right. The opposite of mindfulness, anti-mindfulness. <laughs> and uh, I think that's part of it. And I think also, you know, we've lost a kind of culture of like here. I, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but um, I totally can recognize it in the kind of books my dad was reading as a kid or his 
culture, his background. And I could recognize it even in my own, I'm 67, so I could recognize it in my own childhood in the 50s and 60s. There were more, there was a greater focus on values, I guess, on, and, and they, a lot of them were religious. Some of them were more, I was a Boy Scout. They were more in the culture, right? Just mm-hmm. develop yourself, right? Develop yourself in positive ways, you know, to be patient, to be thoughtful of others, to be uh, prudent in your activities, or to, to um, really kind of be at home in your own body. And I think there's a way in which we've sort of lost that, uh, those, those values. I mean, I recognize that some of them had problems as well. They were, you know, racist or sexist. There was other stuff dropped sure. in. And we kind of, sure. But I think we may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And it's time to kind of recover values that are, I, you know, you could call them old-fashioned. I just think of them as universal, self-reliance, self-development, kind of a gritty attitude that I want to grow and learn and heal every day and become a little better every day without the pitfalls of striving and self-criticism and stuff like that. Problematic striving, you know, problematic, harsh, beating yourself up. And I think uh, that might be part of it too, actually. Uh, Yeah. You mentioned the term gritty. uh, And obviously your book is called Resilient. How do you define grit? and resilience yeah. and and is that something that we have inherently in us or is that something that we can develop it's a really deep question and from a science standpoint there are many questions still that remain <clears throat> so i looked up the word grit which angela duckworth you probably know mm-hmm. um uh, uh, from pan has really become known for developing this, this idea that kids who have grit will do better than kids who don't, which is not a breakthrough idea, but she has really built it out academically with scholarship. Uh, It might even make more difference just academically as well as in life as a whole to to be gritty rather than intelligent. I mean, obviously smart and gritty is pretty good, (laughs) but grit matters, all right, so, but what is grit? Grit is what's left after everything else is worn away. Right. So I think it's that quality deep down inside us. I myself have never served in the uh, armed forces. I've never been uh, in law enforcement. So I haven't had those kind of experiences. I definitely have had experiences of wilderness. There were life and death, critical or, you know, horrible sometimes. And uh, where one mistake, you know, would be lethal. And at the end of the day, you're just exhausted. You're fried. Uh, a lot of stuff's going on. But there's this core inside you that just does not give up you know you just keep going and uh, you may need to rest for a moment to to regather your strength to keep going so you can be self-nurturing in skillful ways wrapped around that grit to protect the grit Uh, but that's what i think of grit and what's interesting also we tend to take grit as a given you either got it or you don't actually it's something we really develop you can get you can run out of grit you can just be so exhausted you're you're out uh, but if, on the other hand, you could protect yourself, it's more like if you're going to run a marathon, you can't do it like a hundred yard dash, right. right? So you have to sustain effort over time. And there are different factors that make people gritty. I suspect there's probably the classic nature nurture where there's probably about a th- roughly a third of the variation in adults is based on DNA, heritable factors mm-hmm. they're called. So let's ballpark that about a third of whether someone has grit is grounded in their DNA, they're just baked in. The other two thirds is acquirable through trainings of various kinds, like 
I have no idea if this is relevant, but I've read with fascination about Navy SEAL training. Right. And uh, I've spoken uh, in depth with people who've gone through it. And wow, you know, does that, um, does that make a person grittier, especially if you get through it, uh, you know? Uh, I suspect it does, actually. So we can become grittier in various ways. And I'm gonna finish on this point, which is we tend to glamorize grit, right? If we see all these action movies, right. or Navy SEAL, you know, I want to be that one, you know. Right. And then I, I think a lot about, wait a minute here, there are other forms of grit. There, there are oh, people, absolutely. yeah, I, I think weirdly just standing by my father's bedside for long periods of time and just staying there. It wasn't flashy, it wasn't dramatic. There were definitely no bullets flying. But man, it took it took something to just keep staying there. My legs sure. hurt, my feet hurt. I was my heart was heavy. I was enraged at all the craziness going on around him that was hurting him. Couldn't do anything about. Um, that takes grit, you know. Or just in like childbirth. Wow. Or just pushing a broom down a hall at three in the morning and a second job because that's what you got to do to feed your family. There's a lot right. of grit that's about just enduring, enduring. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, and I would, I would argue that my, my wife, even with my, the grit that I had built up through SEAL training, my wife is a thousand times grittier than I am. Um, one, she puts up with me. Two, <laughs> two uh, yeah, our, our uh, first child, our three-year-old daughter, uh, when she was six months old, she underwent major surgery. And mm. I, I was a complete mess. Uh, and, yeah. my, and my wife was a rock. And, and yeah. I, I would say that's, that's her grit coming through there as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think she uh, partially developed that through the nurture, probably the third. She was raised with uh, six brothers mm. <laughs> and, and one sister. So that probably <laughs> had something to do with it. Um, and, but then I think the other two thirds is just her development through, through yeah. time. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I agree. Mm. Obviously, I don't have the scientific yeah. knowledge that you have, but I, I agree mm. that it can be developed. In, uh, in your other, in one of your other books, you've got several, but uh, Buddha's Brain is the, the other one that I've read. You talk about uh, darts, the first and second yeah. darts. Uh, what are these darts and, mm. and where do they come from? Yeah, so um, as context by myself, I'm again like a practical person who was very unhappy as a kid, got really interested in mental health and self-exploration and have been through a lot of uh, another uh, really intense experiences often in the emotional psychological sphere that could that also are really quite powerful right you can go through that and it takes something to really go through that those kind of experiences my own background training okay in all that i've really drawn on i guess value in three places brain science psychology and the perennial wisdom around the world different traditions about how to understand the mind really deeply the one i'm most trained in in terms of the contemplative traditions of the world the wisdom traditions if you think about it most of which are spiritual in some way some are not you know and then some are kind of you're not quite sure like the early teachings of the buddha and so that's where a lot of my own training is just that kind of really penetrating analysis of the mind laid out by him it's all available you can just read in a good translation what he was talking about it's really very very penetrating so in that context in which i'm not trying to preach or persuade or anything like that i'm just sort of like see for yourself that's what he said don't take anything on you know faith alone he said see for yourself if it works for you so he had this metaphor uh, of the first and second arrow or dart 
right? And the first dart of life is inescapable physical or emotional pain. There's just no way around it. Like for example, when your daughter was so vulnerable, six months old, little precious right. baby, so small, mind blowing, right? How small they are. Yeah. And um, so much is out of your hands. That's a first dart experience. Of course you would feel uh, freaked out. You know, of course you would feel pissed off maybe about certain things. You know, right. just of course you would feel rattled. Those are the first darts of life. Or if someone was pounding on your foot with a hammer, of course you would feel pain. But then we add the second darts, the third, fourth, 10th darts of our reactions to it all. Like in a hypothetical, I'm just going to make it up. If you mm -hmm. started blaming yourself for her medical condition, that would be a second dart you would throw. Right. Or if you um, started using your wife as a lightning rod for your upset and sense of helplessness, that would be a second dart you would be throwing. And if you look at it, so much of our suffering broadly, our stress, our discomfort, our upset has to do with second darts. It has to do with our reactions to what's happening or even our reactions to our reactions. And I use the metaphor in the book, um, and uh, you'll be familiar to you. You know, it's happened to me. It's dark. It's late at night. I'm getting up out of bed. Got to go down the hall. Go to use the bathroom. And I whack my leg in a coffee table that's just sitting there out there. And the first start is the pain in my leg and maybe that sense of shock initially. And then comes the second dart. I'm pissed off at the coffee table. Right. Damn coffee table. <laughs> I kicked the table. What? You know, and then right. it really hurts. And I think, what an idiot. And I get mad at myself. What an idiot I am for leaving the coffee table there. And now I'm kicking the coffee table. On and on it goes. And then my dad's voice is in my head. Rick, you're just a second, third, tenth cards. It's a silly example. but It's so real. So the trick a lot in life is to put a shock absorber to grow the muscle of a kind of inner shock absorber so that we deal with the first starts of life for what we are, what they are. We try to minimize them as best we can. Inevitably, some will come. Um, and try to let things be what they are. This is, again, where mindfulness, I think, is really helpful. It's, a, it's part of that shock absorber, to let things be what they are without investing in or feeding our second dart reactions. You know, like if a second dart arises right there, do we add to it? right? With third, mm -hmm. fourth, fifth darts. Or right. do we just notice, oh, wow, I just kicked the table. That was a little goofy. Breath. Well, now I got to go pee. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and you move on. Or do, do, that's the problem a lot. It's we feed and follow our negative reactions. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's not so much a problem that they arise because then they'll just pass away. Like clouds eventually will disperse in the sky. It's that we feed them and follow them and get caught up in them and brrr, ruminate about them. Uh, and then that's what reinforces their neural pathways in the brain. And then that becomes the habit of our own mind. Not good. No, no. So um, negativity bias there. Um, can, can you tell us about negativity oh. bias and then the, and then, well, this were a, a class, man. You'd be getting an A, just right, <laughs> left, and center. All right. <laughs> You're going right after my greatest hits. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, can you tell us about negativity yeah. bias and then uh, the three poisons uh, that that uh, suffering uh, is, you mentioned the suffering that that is uh, expressed through? Wow, that's so cool. So, okay. One of the really useful findings from brain science is that through biological evolution, okay, 
600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, right? Very, very simple jellyfish in the ancient seas. And then we have kind of crabs and lizards crawling out on the land. Then we have uh, mammals 200 million years ago, primates 40 million years ago, told tool-making hominids two and a half, three million years ago, and then modern humans, 300,000 years of modern humans. Still, uh, the brain is evolving. Uh, I notice your eyes are blue. You have kind of blue, gray eyes. Well, you are a mutant, sir. No one had blue eyes 5,000 years ago. Someone was born probably around modern Denmark with blue eyes who became very popular. And whose <laughs> children became popular as well. Seriously, biological yeah. evolution, it's a lot slower than cultural evolution, but it's still happening. Okay. Down that long, you know, strange road of life, uh, our ancestors needed to get carrots and avoid sticks. Okay. But if you don't get a carrot today, like food or chance to hook up with somebody else, you might get lucky tomorrow. You'll have a chance tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, that predator, that bad event, boom, right. no more carrots forever. And um, I'm just immediately imagining uh, the application of that for people who are in high intensity, life and death, maybe combat type situations. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have to avoid that stick. There's a Related metaphor, uh, there are two mistakes a person can make in the wild, an animal could make in the wild. One is essentially to think that there's a tiger in the bushes about to pounce, but really there's no tiger. The other mistake right. is everything's, you think the coast is clear, but really there's a tiger there's in tiger. the bush. Yeah. Right. And so what's the cost of the first mistake? Needless anxiety. What's the cost of the second mistake? Life and death. So we're designed to make the first mistake right? A thousand times to avoid making the second mistake once. All right. this makes total sense in the Stone Age or Jurassic Park or during Game of Thrones, <laughs> right? It makes total sense. But these days, and even today in certain situations, it makes total sense to have this negativity bias. But most of the time these days, it creates needless suffering, needless conflict, needless wear and tear on the body. Also on the physical health, wearing down physical health over time, needless stress, needless preoccupations with the negative, uh, with, with irritation, resentment, resentment, anxiety, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of worthlessness, uh, feeling mistreated, you know, grievances, grievance against others, mm, that we're really vulnerable to having those played up on by authoritarian leaders of different mm -hmm. kinds. You've seen that throughout history as well as in Game of Thrones, right? You see that, <laughs> that, I thought right? that was history. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the Bronze Age, baby, or the Iron Age, too. Oh, that, yeah, that's, that is history. That's yeah. still happening in various ways. <laughs> Maybe a little subtler, but it's happening. Anyway, so long story short, We've got a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. Okay, so what's the takeaway? In, in certain situations, yeah, work that negativity bias. Stay alive. Live to see the sunrise. You got it. Most of the time, though, number one, deal with the negative. Deal with it. It's real. Got to deal with it. Number two, when you're upset about something, stressed or feeling bad, try to disengage from that as fast as you can. Minimally, be mindful of it which is like a circuit breaker that stops the neurological reinforcement of the sadness or anger or frustration or dismay, just witnessing it, noting it to yourself. Neurologically, if we note, if we just name our experiences, you know, the saying, name it to tame it, right? So you just name it like pissed off. Okay. Worried. Okay. Shocked. Okay. Numb. Okay. You know, just 
you know, want to get hammered again now. Okay, right? You're just naming it. That alone is 50%. My experience as a longtime therapist, that's half of it right there to step back from it and witness it and be with it rather than get hijacked by it, right? That's a really mm -hmm. important thing. And then beyond that, turn to something, turn to some, an alternative, turn to something better, right? When you're not solving the crisis, putting out the fire in the moment, running for your life in the moment, focus on something that's reassuring, that's calming, it's pleasurable in a healthy way, it's funny, um, feels good, is a relief, anything. You know, focus on the positive, get out of the red zone. You, you may know the fantastic book on stress. I would highly recommend it in, in, in your work if you don't know it. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. This is Robert. Oh, it's fantastic. It's Robert Sapolsky. He's a great, great guy uh, and uh, expert. He's at Stanford. He has a huge beard, incredible teacher. So he used to spend many months a year with baboons or whatever in Africa. He's a very cool guy. And he points out that, uh, as he puts it, in the wild, most episodes of stress end quickly, one way or another. Right, <laughs> a little grim humor there, but it's true. We're not designed to experience chronic stress, right? The right. zebra gets away from the from the lion, or it doesn't, right? Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Either way, it ends fast. The lion gets the zebra, or it doesn't. Either way, and then they go back to their resting state. That's Mother Nature's blueprint. But we, because of the negativity bias, we ruminate. We spend a lot of time in. I call it the red zone. Um, you know, we're just, where we're in kind of chronic stress. Maybe it's mild. It's not running for your life from a lion that's charging, but right. it's still chronic and pervasive and inescapable. And that's not Mother Nature's blueprint for us. That is really bad for physical health and mental health and functioning with other people. So the trick for me, like I said, is to recognize the negative, deal with it, pull out of it fast, shift gears as quickly as you can to something else that's authentic and useful and more generally build up the positive inside. Uh, I don't mean by that happy, smiley thinking. I mean strengths inside. Build up gratitude, grit, compassion, sense of purpose in your life, sense of worth in yourself. Build up those resources so the next time, you know, the tiger charges or the, the threat occurs, you deal with it, but you recover rapidly back to kind of your green zone core. The right. core of resilient well-being, right? That's the key. It's, yeah. In, in finishing on this key point, I thanks for letting me rattle on here. I hope Please. it's okay. That's what it's. That's what a podcast <laughs> is all about: getting the guest to speak. <laughs> I don't know. Well, as you probably know, I mean, I'm very interested in what you see. It's um, for me. There are two things that mark resilience. Number one, um, not being knocked so hard when things happen in the core. And I want to be clear: it's not resilient per se, to just keep on going when you feel terrible inside, right? Sometimes we have to keep going when we feel terrible inside, but the fact that what's happened has penetrated to the core of your being is an indicator of some vulnerabilities there. Um, what's better is to be tired, to be in pain, to be frustrated, while still in the core of your being is some feeling of well-being, some feeling of of inner peace, actually. You know what you're doing, you're doing the best you can, you're hanging in there, you don't like it, but in the core of your being, you're fundamentally still okay. And that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, that's, that's the heart of resilience. So then when you have that unshakable core inside, 
one, when life lands on you, it doesn't knock you so hard. And right. second, when it knocks you hard, you recover faster to your baseline. I think of it a little like uh, a keel of a ship in the water. I have capsized a sailboat, so I, and I learned immediately, oh, buckle your life jacket before you fall in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> with tennis shoes on. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> and then I had to start. And I was like, man, it's hard to swim when, you're, when you have all your clothes on, including right. your shoes. You probably knew that already. Anyway, I did get back on the boat and we flipped it over eventually. Nice. But long story short, you know, sail with a keel. And I think of resilience as like growing a keel in our inner sailboat. And the deeper the keel, the um, less tipped we are by life, the more able we are to deal with challenges, the big dark blue. And also, if we do get slammed, we recover faster. I love that analogy, as, especially as, as a Navy guy. I love it. It fits perfectly. That's um, right. So uh, in, in your book, you also mention a story uh, that I think many of us have heard before about two wolves and, yeah. and you know, you can feed one or starve yeah. the other. Can you tell us briefly that story and then how you go about feeding the right wolf and starving the other? Right. That's great. Well, so the story, it's, it's a little unclear where it actually comes from. It was originally attributed as a Native American first people story, Cherokee. Uh, but actually, it's been discovered that uh, somebody in the 30s just sort of made it up. Da-da. So I'm just going to ignore where the story came from and just judge for yourself. Da-da. And you can find versions of it around the world. So the, the short, you know, one version of it, uh, which I'm just going to speak right now, is... Uh, how I heard it actually is kind of cool. Uh, a woman was asked toward the end of her life, you know, ref to reflect on her life. And, and the younger people asked her, so how did you become so effective? How did you become so loved? How did you become so happy? How did you become so wise? What did you do? How did you do it? And she paused and reflected and said, well, I think it's because when I was young like you, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And I realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. That's a version of that story. And it's funny, John, I've told it many times. And even as I tell it again, I just feel it, you know, like um, first the recognition of the wolf of hate, metaphorically speaking, that capacity and even inclination toward aggression, violence, dehumanization, and, and war. Uh, and if we hate the wolf of hate, we'd feed the wolf of hate. Also, the wolf of hate has many qualities that are really useful. You know, warrior spirit, healthy aggression, being fiery, you know, doing what you got to do to take care of yours, you know, your own people. Place for that. Uh, on the other hand, man, that wolf of hate, uh, in evolution, uh, in our, as hunter-gatherer bands, we evolved to be very cooperative and quote-unquote loving with us, while also, uh, given the frequently lethal aggression between bands, fighting for scarce resources, very brutal back in the Stone Age. Um, and today you know, still, we, uh, uh, yeah, in forms in of some, yeah, exactly right. So we're, we're very vulnerable to just dehumanizing, uh, resenting, fearing, exploiting, and aggressing on them, hating them really, really casually. We're very vulnerable in that way. And so it's important to be careful with the wolf of hate. 
it gets it starts looking around for someone to bite really quickly and it's easy to manipulate the wolf of hate in people right. make people afraid make people think they're being mistreated uh, uh, make people feel desperate make people have contempt for them uh, and then it gets really easy to play on grievances and develop vengeful fantasies and activities. So we're, we're vulnerable to that. We've got to be very careful about that. Meanwhile, we can really, really feed the wolf of love. In my view, the wolf of love is fundamentally stronger you know, because we spent most of our time in hunter-gatherer bands with us. So naturally, it was pro-survival for individuals to learn how to cooperate with each other and function as a team. Even if you don't always like each other and even if two guys are competing for the same woman, you know, sooner or later, and you know, the loser doesn't like it, whatever, but you're still part of the same band. Your right. fate is bound together day in and day out, and you live together and you see everything about each other. So the wolf of love, I think, is innately stronger. That said, we've got to be careful of wolf of hate. So how do we feed the wolf of love? Or more generally, how do we feed feed all the other things we want to grow inside? Sense of mission, sense of personal worth, sense of value, sense of patience restraint you know if frankly if a person has been trained to <laughs> unleash a lot of aggression right how do you shift gears out of that noble pursuit right to a different life yeah, absolutely where where you got to learn to put on the brakes you know and keep them on <laughs> and <laughs> and put on the brakes without going dead inside without getting numb inside. How do you actually do that? That's really interesting, isn't it? Right. So these are things Very. that we can grow. Yeah. And I find it's super helpful to just kind of, and then you ask yourself how to do it. For me, the, the crux is really interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak to this as a kind of personal story. So uh, I had an okay childhood. It wasn't horrible. It wasn't traumatic or abusive, but I was unhappy a lot. Um, there were different things with my parents or different things in school. I was really young going through school. So by the time I was, you know, 15 or so, um, I felt really unhappy. I was really miserable. It just seemed kind of desperate. And um, then it came to me essentially, uh, and I mark it because I was reading the book Dune at the time. And the uh, main character was 15 also. And there was a, there's a theme in that book, if you know it. I don't know if you've read it, John. You're smiling here, maybe. Yeah. yeah, a while ago. <laughs> a while ago. Anyway, so Paul Madib, um, revolutionary military leader, actually, in the book, kind of cool. Uh, he was really involved in a path of training. His mother was training him in the warrior arts and stuff like that. And so um, I began reflecting myself, and I realized that as screwed up as I was and how crummy the past was, I could always learn a little today. I could always get a little smarter, a little more skillful, a little calmer around girls, a little less reactive around my parents, a little less twisted and neurotic inside my own mind. I could, I could actually start to feel better about myself. You know, I could develop in various ways, whatever it was. Um, and that was incredibly hopeful. And so to me, the crux here is whether someone's trying to help themselves grow and learn. That's the most important thing. What are you here for? Are you here to stagnate and feel helpless and miserable? Or are you here to help yourself feed the good wolves inside yourself a little bit every day, right? To feed the sense of 
worth, to feed a sense of camaraderie with others, you know, to feed the understanding that, you know, that was one chapter in my life and now I need to get good at the next chapter in my life, right? You, whatever it is, you're trying to grow. It's really hopeful, but you got to get on your own side to do it. No one can defeat you in your own inner learning laboratory, in your own inner temple, in your own the core of your being. No one can defeat you there because you can always take action there. On the other hand, no one could do it for you. You have to take action inside yourself, yourself, right? To grow and learn and develop. And therefore, you have to take responsibility. And that responsibility means that you earn the results of your efforts. This is, uh, this is fantastic. Uh, next week, we're doing a, a webinar series. Well, we actually started it last week um, with um, eMindful mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're tying in with Congressman Tim Ryan next week where I'll be on the webinar episode and I'm specifically speaking about resilience and the growth mindset and, and being your best in, in tough times. Uh, so I think I'm just going to take this episode and push play. <laughs> so you're giving me a lot of great, a lot of great uh, information. As a matter of fact, um, earlier this week, or maybe in the last week, I'm kind of losing track of the days. Uh, yeah. When I spoke with James Barris, uh, he mentioned your, um, your comment there about uh, our minds being Teflon mm. for the positive things and Velcro for the negative things. He did give you credit. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, he didn't use it first, so he did, he did give you credit, but I'm going to be uh, using that, and I'll make sure I give you credit there, too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that is that is all fantastic stuff, and I hope our listeners are uh, hanging on every single word here. Um, mm -hmm. back, back to your book, um, specifically Buddha's Brain. Um, I'm going to ask questions based on some of the, the comments you made earlier about, uh, you don't, you know, you don't want to slant people a certain way as far as yeah. religion or anything. Is your book for Buddhists? No, not, a, not at all. Um, that's great. I thank you for saying that or asking. It would be kind of like, I, I could have, I mean, I, I, I mean this with real respect. I could have said, it doesn't make a good book title, but the seal brain, you know, in a sense, if you want to get good at something, study people who are good at it. And um, uh, I actually had a long, deep conversation with someone uh, at a wedding, actually. He was a fellow groomsman, and we hung out at the bar, you know, and just talked for hours and hours. And he was, um, I'm going to kind of disguise some details out of respect for him, even though this was sure. 30 years ago. Um, he was a really serious special forces operator in the 80s and 90s, uh, 80s mainly. And um, uh, without revealing too much, it was really clear the kind of things he had done. And I would start to imagine how he did it. In, not in the sense of the particular military skills, let's say, but his attitude. What enabled him to drop in, you know, uh, in certain situations and carry out a mission, right? It, and I would imagine that, like, wow, how did you do that? How did you deal with the fear, right? How did you do that? How did, and and so I would, yeah, and I'd I'm work still backwards. How to do that? <laughs> oh, okay, well, and I, I would do that in rock climbing. I'd watch people who are amazing. I go like, how do you do that? Or I'd watch, uh, frankly, uh, like you said about your wife, I would watch people, women I've worked with, and I would just go, whoa, that is really interesting. How do you 
be like that? And how do you do that so skillfully? And then I want to work backwards. Well, in much the same way, if we're interested in kind of the ultimate of inner peace or um, fundamental peace of mind in horrible situations, uh, uh, we want to, I think, for me, study people who've made that their life's work. They've really done a lot of training. You find them in different traditions. Um, I've learned a lot from a friend of mine who's a Christian minister of Christian contemplative practice, for example. Uh, I have a friend who's a Sufi. There's some deep stuff there, you know. I have other friends who are secular, athe hardcore atheists, stone atheists, and deeply trained meditators and mindfulness practitioners that I learn from, and, and wonderfully honorable in the examples of their of their lives. So for me, that's how I related to the whole Buddha brain thing. And I, yeah. I think also that um, of all the world's wisdom traditions, in a funny way, Buddhism is the least religious. <laughs> Especially the Buddha, he said, you know, this is about the mind. It's not about, he didn't refer to God. He didn't say he had any superpowers. He just said, hey, I'm, I'm a guy. I did this path. It worked for me. Here's what I did. Here's how I trained my mind and therefore my brain. See for yourself. So it's a pretty good fit of the different traditions in the world with science because they're both empirical and pragmatic and they don't resort to explanations mainly, at least in Buddhism, outside of ordinary reality. And so that's, you know, that's what drew me to that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I the Buddha the was, Go I think ahead. the, I'm going to say this. I've never said this. I think the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha was radical. He was hardcore in his yeah. training, the stuff he did, and ultimately the ways he walked away from certain uh, belief systems of his time. He said, they're not working. They're partial. They won't take you all the way. And I think, yeah. And plus he was a decent fellow. He, he included people who were not of the elite caste that he belonged to. They weren't Brahmins. They could be untouchables. Uh, there's a famous story of him, of a serial killer trying to track him down. And the Buddha basically would not let himself be killed. And he converted the serial killer. Angulimala is his name. Uh, and, you know, and he welcomed women, which was incredibly weird and radical for the time, into right. deep practice. So I think he was all around a good guy. Agreed. Uh, That's my two cents. Uh, I love it. <laughs> and the, the reason I asked was I've been asked since I've been practicing mindfulness and teaching it um, yeah. that is, isn't, in, isn't mindfulness Buddhism. And, and I try to, yeah. you know, draw the lines there, but I always fail. Uh, so hopefully what you've given me there is, is some tools oh. to, to kind of break that stereotype and that, that yeah, let me. Let me let me separate this out, okay? Because I think it's a really important point. Um, I think of I've spent a lot of time in schools. I work with kids a lot, and uh, I I think about like a sign in the kindergarten, right? Pay attention, you know, be nice, share your toys. But the first one is pay attention. Pay attention, and um, I think of the classic. A line from William James that the education of attention would be the education par excellence because attention is the front end of who we are becoming. If we can't regulate our attention, we're, we're not autonomous. We can't help ourselves. We can't help other people. Mindfulness is simply about sustained present moment regulation of attention. It's the foundation skill and it's universal. The mindfulness is not Buddhist. People were mindful long before the Buddha. Uh, you don't need to be Buddhist to be mindful, just like you don't need to be Christian to be compassionate. 
Okay, so uh, it's God's not involved unless, except in the ways that God's involved with everything. But right. other than that, um, you know, mindfulness is just about uh, a fundamental skill. It's like saying patience is Jewish or, you know, that uh, generosity is Muslim. It, no, they're human. They're right. human. So, yeah. And I'm fine with using different language, by the way. I think there's a place for shifting, you know, they call it code switching and diversity training. And, you know, African-Americans um, often have to deal with something like that. Where, to me, there's a place for it. If I'm talking with a bunch of, uh, um, let's say I'm teaching a meditation retreat, you know, for kind of hardcore people that have been doing that for a while, I might speak a certain way. On the other hand, if I'm on the radio in Nashville, Tennessee, I'm going to talk a different way, but without <laughs> condescension. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, but you just you're just reaching for a different framework for talking about universal things. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I I know we uh, only scheduled an hour for this, and we're running over that. Uh, so I'll just ask you a last last few questions if you have time. Totally, um, it's such a delight, yeah. and I really support what you're doing, John. This is great. Right. You're you're a really good guy. I should flip <laughs> it around on you. You know. <laughs> Uh, that could be scary. It could go sideways. So we'll, well keep it. I'll, I will ask you a question, John, Please. just to mess, just to okay. mess with you. Okay. Well, well it's a question I, I ask ahead. a lot of people. Okay. I think it's a really important question. So if you could get a critical mass of human beings to do one thing for five minutes every day, hundred million people a day, a billion people a day, that would really, you think, help, period, just help. Five minutes. If you could get them to do one thing for five minutes a day, what would it be? Well, uh, there's it's there's no right answer. Yeah, yeah. Knowing but it's, what I but know it's now, a good question. Uh, knowing what I know now, uh, I, I would say I would say meditation. And uh, I mean, it seems like mm. it, I almost plan at that. Um, no. But I feel uh, I have a personal story and a personal testimony to the power of meditation. It's changed my life, saved my life, quite honestly. Um, and has changed my life in ways that nothing else um, has. I mean, besides my, my wife and my children, that they've changed my life dramatically as well, but in different ways. Um, this was something that I could do for myself. And in doing it for myself, it allowed me to be more connected with others, more compassionate for others. I feel that I was a better, I am a better leader, a better person, and if I could get a critical mass of humans to do that um, together every day, I mean, think what think what that could do for the world. Uh, yeah. So I think that's my that's my answer. And you probably could have guessed Beautiful. it, but I think that's why yeah. that's why I would say that. Thank you. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you for asking. I, I yeah. like that, uh, and thanks for flipping it on me. Yeah. Uh, so last question uh, or last few questions for you, and then we'll wrap it up. I see the bookshelf behind you. Um, I think I may see the happiness advantage or uh, maybe some other ones I recognize. I don't know, yeah. uh, red and yellow one, um, uh, or maybe the power of habit. Maybe that's it. Um, but either way, uh, from your bookshelf, do you have a, a recommendation for our listeners for something to read there? that may not be written by you. <laughs> uh -huh. what, yeah. what would be the purpose? I mean, for what purpose that I can narrow yeah, it down? Tr uh, true. Let's see. Um, I guess to maybe broaden their horizon, broaden their understanding of the mind and, and maybe 
specifically resilience, grit, or mindfulness. If you have anything on the shelf that has anything to do with that. Does it, if I'm going to pick a couple things that are not on the shelf, okay. actually that, um, so saltwater Buddha is a really excellent introduction to mindfulness. It's written by a surfer who ran away from home. True story. When he was 16, bought a one-way ticket to, uh, um, Hawaii. His dad was a serving officer in the air force. Uh, he, he stole his mom's credit card and he, Learn to surf. Literally, it's a story. It's true. But he also learned to surf the waves inside his own mind. And he's a very good writer. He also talks about being in some life and death situations with wild waves and things like that. Saltwater Buddha. That's, a for me, a very accessible, interesting, well-written, powerful book. Okay. Um, a second book that uh, uh, is going to maybe seem really weird to you. I don't know if you've ever read it. The Tracker by Tom Tracker. Brown. Yeah, no, true story. Yeah, I know who Tom Brown is, but I have not read it. Uh, really amazing story of his own life as a kid. Uh, he grew up in New Jersey when it was pretty wild still, like in, like forest, packs of wild dogs, you know, really kind of wild. And his neighbor, uh, his friend, uh, had a grandfather come to live with them, and the grandfather was an Apache tracker. So Tom learned to track. And the stories in it are basically a lot about mindfulness, a lot about paying attention. And I suspect they would be very close to some of the background and training you've had. Um, but that book, uh, I, there was a lot about it, uh, with the, the peaceful warrior, in mm -hmm. effect. You know, it had a lot of qualities in that book. I think that might be a good one. Great. Uh, yeah, oh, I could talk about books somewhere. forever, like some wild ones. I, I tend toward <laughs> sci-fi and wild stuff and, you know, books that have really just touched me. But I, I think those two. Great. I'll have to pick those up. And um, Tom Brown, uh, several of our guys go through the Tom Brown tracking school. Um, yeah. and, you know, they learn obviously the tracking piece, but there's a lot more that comes in that school. Uh, so it's yeah. pretty amazing. So I, I, I don't find that weird at all, the, the fact that you would recommend that book. But I'll, I'll have to check That's both cool. of those out. Yeah. All right. Well, Rick, uh, coming to the end of our show, what have we not talked about that you'd like our listeners to, to hear? I don't, well, that's great. I mean, there's so much, obviously we could do, we could go in a lot of directions and that's why I paused there at length. And, um, I don't know if this would be helpful for people, but I intuitively it feels real for me. So um, it's really weird that when things are at their worst, often some of the best resources for when things are at their worst is a sense of the highest happiness a sense that intuition inside us for many people it's it becomes spiritual a sense of the of the divine the infinite you know the god's grace let's say it might be a sense of the ultimate love that's willing to make the ultimate sacrifice something and i think it's really important that in the pressure and and muck of daily life as it often can be that we don't lose sight of the pinnacle, the top of the mountain. We're down in the swamps, but keep in mind the snowy peaks. It reminds me a little of uh, the Lord of the Rings 
book, which I love the, the series and right. the movie too. I, I've seen the movie multiple times, movies. Anyway, uh, there's this passage where you, you probably, if you know the book, you might know it, where the at, when things are at their worst, the two main characters, Frodo and Sam, are crawling up this volcano, Mount Doom, as it's exploding. All their friends are getting slaughtered. You know, the horrible villain is coming at them. It's all bad. And uh, the the... The evil of the villain is metaphorically represented by these dark storm clouds that cover everything. And yet at that moment, one of the characters, Sam, sees peeping through a little tattered hole in the clouds, a star. Light. Always there. Sometimes hidden, but it's always there. And no matter what happened here, he says to himself, it lifted his heart that there was a high beauty and clarity and light that was indestructible by anything that was happening down here. And I just think there's a place for tuning into whatever that is for a person, that sense of the highest or the most profound, the most infinite, and to, and to stay in touch with that. And to, um, in a funny way, even aspire to develop oneself in that way. And I think for people, especially who've uh, focused a lot on high, really intense training, really intense development, to shift that machinery, in a sense, to shift that way of being, to developing the highest qualities inside themselves, the most fundamental inner peace, the deepest wisdom, the most unshakable love, you know, a fundamental contentment, to really grow that inside and take that as an aspiration and be inspired by that possibility, just one step at a time. I think it, en it ennobles people to take that step each way and, and to keep the heights, you know, whatever, however you talk about them yourself or feel them, to keep the heights in view and to know in your heart that uh, you are living in relationship to those heights. And helping yourself become more available to them and, and be lived more and more by them and live in them more and more each, each breath and each day. Well, thank you, Rick. I, I appreciate that. And, uh, and I appreciate the pause that you took there. That was a very um, mindful pause. Uh, I, I can tell that you put a lot of thought into the answer. So thank you for the thought mm -hmm. and for, and for the content. Uh, if, if people wanted to reach out to you after the show, Rick, how, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you or find you on, uh, on your website or, or whatever mm -hmm. else? I think the, thank you. Just go to my website, rickhanson.net. Tons of freely offered resources, many of them very bite-sized, some of them longer. They, um, information for people who work with others. I have slide sets from lots of workshops I've taught, guided meditations, videos, online programs um, ranging from really, really short and sweet things to like a year-long journey of personal resilience development. And um, we're quite happy, they're inexpensive. We're quite happy who can afford it to buy them. That funds the whole operation, kind of the Robin Hood principle. And meanwhile, for anyone with significant financial need, we love making these programs available to them. Part of the whole purpose of my operation is to enable that to happen, to freely offer things um, here at home and, and even around the world. So that, anyway, Rick Hansen, son.net. That's outstanding, Rick. Well, thank you for that. And I'll make sure that uh, is shared in the show notes when we publish yeah. this. 
Okay. And, uh, and, and everything else, all the books that you've written, the books that you covered uh, just a minute ago, and then obviously the, the content that you shared with us throughout today's episode will be aired both uh, on audio version and video on YouTube, and that'll be coming out in the, in the coming weeks. Rick, it's been a, an absolute honor having you with me today. Again, thank you so much for spending your time with me, spending your time with our audience, and, uh, and I know that our listeners are going to benefit from everything that you shared with us today, so thank you again. Complete pleasure, John, and a lot of fun, and in a different time, in a different place, maybe we go rock climbing together. That would there be a lot go. of fun. Oh, I like that. I've got my, my one-year-old little boy. Um, I, I don't know where he gets it, but he has a propensity to want to climb absolutely everything, so yeah, yeah maybe down the road. <laughs> That'd, be <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. That'd be a lot of fun. I have a perfect safety record. <laughs> I still do. I've taken hundreds of people out. Okay, oh, you take good nice. care. This has been right. a pleasure. Until we, uh, until we talk again, stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah, thank you. For our listeners and viewers, thank you again for listening to or watching our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button here on the podcast or here on YouTube. Leave us a comment, a review, a like, and again, share it with anyone you feel needs to hear our message. And remember, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority improving and saving lives.